right. Well, we left off last time uh, David was describing the events surrounding the, the crucifixion of Christ. We came to Psalm 22, verse 16 and 17. David says, for, for dogs have surrounded me. If you have a New King James, of course, it's me is uh, capitalized. But then also you see a lot of capitalized uh, letters embedded in the text. Uh, that the, the New King James does that. I, I believe the reason is, is that at each line in the original format of the New King James, they capitalize the words. And, uh, and then subsequent uh, publications of it, they, they didn't change that, and so they're just mingled throughout the text. And I have better things to do than to correct all of those capital letters, so I just copy and paste it in there. So if you see capitals uh, where they don't belong, I didn't do that. It's what I didn't do, okay? But uh, divinity is always capitalized, King James. And there where it says, uh, for dogs have surrounded me, uh, it's a reference to Christ. And then also at the end, they look and they stare at me. Well, verse 16 where it says, for, the the causative there, verse 16 explains the the victim's extreme dehydration, exhaustion, and uh, the desperation mentioned in verse 15. It's, it, the, the wicked at this point, uh, they, they have their victim in their grasp. And now the, the, vertal, the, uh, sorry, the verbal ridicule has become a physical assault. Okay, they're now um, attacking his body. And uh, the, the physical torture comes, of course, to a climax at the point uh, of, of piercing the victim's hands and feet. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked, they have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. Uh, so now that the hands and feet have been pierced, he's become this spectacle. Um, the details uh, at this point in the text, uh, it becomes very evident that we're talking about the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, first, as I mentioned in the intro to Psalm 22, none of the things in the text ever happened to David. At no time in his life uh, were his hands and feet pierced through, and, uh, and he was certainly never executed. We know that David died at a good old age in his bed, okay, never executed. And also, this practice of you know, piercing the hands and feet of an enemy or of a criminal uh, as a form of execution wasn't practiced in Israel until another 800 years uh, when the Romans had introduced it, okay? The, I think I mentioned it last time, the Persians had practiced a, um, a, a, a version or a form of crucifixion in the 6th century B.C., but that's still 400 years after David, who lived in 1000 B.C., and he penned all of this. So none of these things happened to David, um, and none of these things actually were happening for hundreds of years. So David is looking forward to something uh, concerning Messiah, Zechariah 12.10 also speaks of the Messiah being pierced. So um, the, in, from a prophetic perspective, the, the, they are looking forward to Messiah's suffering, that he will suffer uh, some kind of gruesome death. You read Isaiah 53, you also uh, get the, that feel. He's going to be tortured. Now, real quick, I, I did mention some archaeological evidence last time together. Now, it was never a doubt uh, from historians that the Romans had practiced crucifixion. Uh, the word literally means to be fixed to a cross. 
But there were doubts about whether or not they actually nailed victims to the cross. Uh, they were saying uh, that they were tying them to the cross and then they would remain on the cross till they suffered. But um, evidence of crucifixion by nailing uh, or just evidence of scripture has a way of surfacing. So I thought I would show you some uh, archaeological evidence. Uh, this, uh, of course, the, the, the picture on the left is a, is a, a model. Uh, the actual ankle bone is on the right, and the, you can see the nail uh, still in the ankle bone. This was discovered in 1968 uh, in northeastern Jerusalem in an ossuary. Ossuary is a, a bone box, and this person had evidently been crucified, and uh, the nail, the iron nail, was uh, in such a way that they, they couldn't get it out. And so it was just left in the victim, victim's ankle. And uh, now at the time, in 1968, this was the only physical evidence of crucifixion by, by nailing uh, the victim to the cross. But re very recently, uh, new evidence has been discovered, but not in Israel. Uh, this is another ankle bone. The, the iron nail is still in it. This was found in a cemetery in a Roman settlement in Fenstanton, Cambridgeshire, England. And it was found in 2021. This is very recent. Um, pretty crazy, huh? So the Romans had been crucifying people all over the place. And uh, they did it for hundreds of years until Constantine had banished the practice. So, yep, no doubt the Romans used nails in crucifixion. And this is important because um, nails are mentioned in the Gospels in the gospel account. After Jesus rose from the dead, he showed the disciples his hands and his feet, you know, where the scars were, where the nails had been. And of course, you know, Thomas, he was absent the first time that Jesus appeared to the disciples. And, uh, and when they reported to Thomas that Jesus was risen, he said, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Unless I see it, and unless I touch the sight, I'm not going to believe it. And eight days later, um, uh, Jesus appeared to the disciples. Thomas was present, and he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. He says, look at my hands. Reach your hand here, and he put it into my, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then we get that amazing declaration from Thomas. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. So Jesus was indeed pierced by nails when he was crucified. Crazy, crazy cruelty. Verse 18, um, continue on with more prophecy. It says, They divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Again, David was never put... I never experienced anything like this. His clothing was never gambled for, as it were. But John, the apostle, and some of the other apostles, they actually observed this taking place shortly after Jesus was crucified. John said, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which say they divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things, John nineteen twenty three. 
Now, there's something very interesting about John's statement there. He says that the scriptures might be fulfilled in regard to Jesus' clothing being uh, divided and then gambled for. Now, John, it's interesting because he refers to this event about Jesus' clothing like he does the fulfillment of any other prophecy in the Old Testament. Okay? Even though Psalm 22 is not in what we typically think of as a prophetic book, and neither is Psalm 22 written in the prophetic style, what we might say is prophetic language, you know, and it will come to pass, or something of that nature. Okay? John refers to it as a prophetic text, though. Matthew goes even further. Uh, did I mention the reference that was John 19.23? Matthew adds to this something. He says, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. That's Matthew 27.35. Do you notice the difference between John and Matthew? John simply says that the scriptures might be fulfilled, but Matthew adds that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Who is the prophet that authored the text? It was David. David was the prophet that authored the text. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls David a prophet. So the Psalms of David are not simply inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not just something that he um, caused to happen. David spoke prophetically. Peter affirms the same thing. You remember at Pentecost, he quotes Psalm 16, which is a psalm of David, and the psalm uh, refers to the resurrection. And then Peter uh, turns to the crowd and he says, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Acts 20, verse 30. So Peter calls David a prophet. And we should expect to find things like this. You know, we might call them prophetic psalms because Jesus said that the things written in the psalms concerning him must be fulfilled. Do you want me to bend this out? I have a new headpiece, and it keeps sounding like I hit it. Is that better? We'll find out in a minute. So this, Jesus said that all of the things concerning me that were written in the Psalms must be fulfilled, just like the, the, um, the prophecies. That's Luke 24, 44. Jesus also viewed David as a prophet. He said, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's Mark 12, 36. David even knew that he spoke prophetically. He said, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. 2 Samuel 23, 2. So David was a prophet, but we don't usually consider him a prophet because he didn't speak in the normal or typical prophetic style. He, uh, uh, some Bible scholars say he spoke in the first person um, uh, present or the um, prophetic present. That's what they call it. The first person prophetic present. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. He wrote as if these were his own experiences, but they weren't. He was being spoken through about things pertaining to the Messiah. wonder maybe that after the Holy Spirit had inspired some of the biblical authors to write things, that they didn't stay up at night wondering, what is this? Oh, son, the best. No hug? No kiss? I'm sick. That's right. Otherwise... Been a great display of affection up here. My throat doesn't feel dry, I just sound that way, I think. 
But yeah, I wonder if David stayed up at night wondering, what was that all about? Pierced my hands and my feet, and for my clothing they cast lots. I know Daniel, the prophet, and uh, Zechariah especially, Ezekiel too, they probably had nightmares after some of the things that they saw. I mean, Ezekiel, for goodness sakes, you know, his whole vision of the throne room of God and a wheel within a wheel and fire and flame and seraphim and man. Anyway, to be under the inspiration of the Spirit, what an interesting thing. Verse 19 through 21, he says, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me, deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Now, it is interesting uh, that dogs are never mentioned uh, anywhere else in the scriptures as being aggressors or a powerful kind of animal. They're always looked at as a scavenger. But here in Psalm 22, their, their aggression and their power is mentioned a few times. It's very interesting. I don't know why that would be significant, but it, the, it, the text goes out of its way to mention dogs. And when you look at the rest of the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, you know, a number of animals are used for symbols of power, or their power is at least you know, referenced, like lions, leopards, bear, oxen, but never, never dogs. Uh, in the New Testament, I don't know if that's the way that David is using it, but in the New Testament, a dog is... Uh, typically a reference to a Gentile or something as worthless as a Gentile or, you know, dogs were scavenger types and the, the Jews had a way of being very condescending to other races and so they would refer to them as dogs. In the Old Testament, uh, male prostitutes was, were referred to as dogs, uh, but never a powerful animal. It's very interesting. Now, at the end of verse 21, we have this statement. The Messiah says to God, you have answered me. That's interesting. You have answered me. How did God answer Christ? How did he answer him? The text says that he was despised. He was rejected. He was physically abused. He was tortured. His hands and his feet were pierced. And eventually he was executed by evil men. So how did God answer him? Now, there's no answer from God in the text. Okay? Just like there was no answer given in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus prayed, there was no answer when Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's how the psalm begins, okay? No answer, at least nothing is heard or recorded in the text of Scripture. But it says that God answered him, so what then was the answer? I think that if we're going to have any idea of what the answer was, we have to, I mean, look more broadly at the Scriptures. You know, at the Last Supper, Jesus presented the bread and the cup to his disciples. And we know that the whole Last Supper was in anticipation of what Jesus knew was coming. And, you know, he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup, or sorry, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Speaking of the prophetic present, hadn't been shed yet, had it? But it was all in anticipation of it. Jesus knew that his father had made him an appointment with the cross. On a number of occasions, Jesus told the disciples that he was going back to Jerusalem where he would be delivered over to the Gentiles and that he would be crucified. In the garden when he prayed, he prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done regarding the cross. But you know, no answer is in the text. And, and it's not like that the father never spoke to Jesus publicly because we have at least three occasions, right? This is my son 
in whom I am well pleased. This is my son, hear him. So God the Father spoke out. So what's the answer here? I think that the answer to the Messiah must have some reference to the resurrection. Although you're going to endure great suffering and a miserable death, God had sworn an oath, as we read earlier, as Peter points out, that he would not let the, uh, the body of his Holy One undergo decay, corruption in the grave, Psalm 16, verse 10. The author of Hebrews says that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, he despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the, the joy that was set before him, there was joy beyond the cross, there was joy beyond the suffering, the torture, and death, and it was resurrection, and then it was restoration to the right hand of his father. Jesus knew that he would be raised to life again and that he would, he would take that place again with his father. The, the joy of being restored. That's the only answer I can think of. Jesus prayed this shortly before he was arrested. He says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. John 17, verse 5. And then shortly after, he was. And then the fruit of his labor on the cross and through the resurrection would of course then be the redemption of all believers, the, the gathering of all of his brethren and sistren, if we could say that, uh, broaden the, the terms, not so generic. The author of Hebrews mentions this. Listen to the way he puts this. Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Even in that text, there is no answer. It just says that the father heard him because of his godly fear. But even though the father heard him, Jesus still had to suffer torture and death. The answer was not what we would expect, I guess, or what we would want in the midst of suffering. Where does the scriptures promise the new covenant believer that we will be delivered from all suffering in this life? I've read my New Testament a few times and I just, the only thing I can find is the exact opposite of that. That he will be with us through it. And when we die and come out on the other side, we'll then be delivered from it. And of course, on the other side, there's not gonna be any regrets. Nobody's gonna you know, pitch a fit that they had to go through that. But they'll be uh, they'll wake up in glory. And, uh, and I think at that time we'll say, Father, you did hear me, just not in the way that we expected you to answer. You did hear me. Very interesting. The Lord says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Now, this one is, I think, easier to overlook and not see its fulfillment as prophecy. But it's important because in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, it's quoted years later after Jesus' resurrection. Yeah, Hebrews 2.12 quotes it. Well, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he could not have praised God in this way. He could not have declared the name of God to his brethren because see, his brethren is the fruit of his labor of the cross and the resurrection. He had to die. He had to rise again. Dead men declare nothing unless that dead man was raised from the dead. Now, this latter section of the psalm is actually very similar to the last portion of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is all doom and gloom until the very end. And then suddenly there's this burst of light 
there's this praise and proclamation. And uh, only a resurrection can account for it. Yeah. Now, the rest of the psalm from, uh, from here is a call to worship, it, uh, to celebrate God's faithfulness in doxology. It says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Now, I think the reference to the poor being satisfied looks forward to even beyond all of this to the messianic age when Christ rules the nation. For at no other time in history will there be such prosperity that even the poor are satisfied. Certainly not satisfied at this point in history. And I think we'll see them being less and less satisfied over the next couple years as we see inflation rise, not just in America, but around the world. So this period of time is referenced uh, further in the psalm here. It says, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. I think, again, we're talking about the messianic age, okay, when the glory of the Lord fills the earth, and every nation, as the prophets say, will come and worship before Christ. Notice that he does not say the kingdoms, plural. All nations are referred to here as the Lord's kingdom. There will only be one kingdom at the time when Christ rules the nations, okay? when he ushers in prosperity and peace. What a change of pace that'll be. I tell you, Ukraine is looking forward to that. Verse 29 and 30, it says, All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Declared that he has done what? Done what? Now, this is a prophetic psalm. It's looking forward, of course, initially at least, to the crucifixion, to the resurrection of Christ. But what do we call that that whole thing, that whole event. We call it the gospel. We call it the gospel. He says, they will come and declare his righteousness to a people will be born, that he has done this. You guys, the proclamation of the gospel is the declaration of what God has done. That's what's in the context. And this declaration, as the text says, is a proclamation of God's righteousness. The gospel is a proclamation of God's righteousness. Consider what Paul says in Romans 3. Whom... Speaking of Jesus, God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood. Uh, Propitiation uh, here is better translated an atoning sacrifice. So God set forth his son as a, a atoning sacrifice by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. That is the sins that were committed prior to the cross. God In his forbearance, he passed over them to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's interesting, in both of these verses, we have the word righteousness there, righteousness here, just and justifier, 
Same family of Greek words. It's all really one word, different case endings. And uh, it's all a declaration of God's righteousness in the gospel. It's the great declaration. For in it, he provided atonement for men's sins and this imputed righteousness of Christ for man's justification and salvation. It's a great psalm. It looks forward to all that God had pre-planned in his, what the Latin doctors would say, his provideo, his foresight for the sake of humanity. Pretty great, huh? All right. Well, I'm going to let you out early. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray. So, um, as I said, I was going to do 25 psalms, and then we were going to do the book of Isaiah, and then we'll come back and do 25 more psalms. Um, I'm not going to do, uh, I'm not going to spend three years in Isaiah. Uh, we certainly could, but I'm going to treat it sort of as a, uh, a survey exposition, and, uh, and then we'll pause on the highlights, uh, and especially the, the, uh, the big historical things, and then the messianic prophecies in Isaiah. So we have three more psalms, and um, I will just about be on vacation by that time. So we might be starting um, Isaiah in, at the end of May. We'll see. Anyway, let's pray. Well, Father, I can't say that I really understand your foreknowledge, which is, we say that, but foreknowledge is a euphemism. You're eternal, and so you just have knowledge. Nothing before or after, just knowledge. But from our perspective, Lord, it is foreknowledge. You have not just known, but you've prepared. You've done things for our sake, on our behalf. And for the believer, Lord, you have, you've caught us. You've rescued us from sure death, from judgment. And you've known that you would catch me and that you would rescue everyone in this room before we knew, before we were born. As Paul says, before time. And uh, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you plucked us from the fire and, um, and that you've done it through the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for your righteousness and thank you for imputing the righteousness of your son to us that we might be acceptable in your sight. Lord, we thank you for your word. <coughs> it's true, it's good. It's a light, a lamp. Lord, help us to trust your word more and more each day and to look to it for light. Lord, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.